Hello, friends. This is Chris Simpson. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and I appreciate all of you that tune in. I want to do something just a little bit different uh, for the next couple of weeks, maybe. Um, we recently here at Walters Grove Baptist Church just had our second annual New Year camp meeting. In fact, at the time of this recording, it was just last week. And we have it the first week of every year. And we had a great, great meeting. We want to thank the Lord for that. And uh, I thought what I'd do is that I would put a few of the messages that we enjoyed at our camp meeting on this podcast. And so I've just selected just a few that really stood out to me. They were all tremendous. But uh, just a few that stood out that I thought uh, maybe our podcast listeners would like to listen to. And uh, I'm going to stick them on the podcast here uh, for your... Um, benefit and to be a blessing to you. Uh, all of the um, audio and video from the uh, camp meeting, you can find it on my YouTube channel. That's Pastor Chris Simpson YouTube channel. And then you can find it on our church Facebook page as well. And that's Walters Grove Baptist Church. Uh, we're the only one in the world. So just search Walters Grove Baptist Church on Facebook. You'll find all those videos, great singing, great preaching. Uh, the first one I want to put on the podcast is from Pastor Tim Falour. Um, Pastor Falour is from the Victory Baptist Church in Milton, Florida. And uh, Monday night of our camp meeting, he preached a tremendous, uh, tremendous message out of Romans 8 about the flesh and the spirit. I enjoyed it greatly, and uh, I believe you will too. Uh, God touched Brother Fleur as he preached, preached with great power, great authority, and uh, just a tremendous Bible message. And praise the Lord, we had uh, had one saved at the end of the Monday night service. A man came forward and realized he was lost and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And we were all there to be able to rejoice with him. What a great uh, evening it was on Monday night. So anyway, here's the here's the message from Pastor Tim Fleur. Uh, out of Romans 8. I hope you enjoy it. God bless you. Romans chapter number 8, if you would. And I, two or three times a year, I get invited to preach in several Bible conferences in which the pastor assigns the subject or the text to the guest preachers. Usually there will be a a theme or a chapter or maybe a small book that he wants to go through. And we're given advance notice several months in advance so we can prepare. And typically the way that it would work, in fact, we just did one, I don't know, four or five months ago, I guess, uh, uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where we went through the book of Jude. And so on Monday night, the first preacher would have the first verse and then the second preacher would have verse two and then Tuesday you come in and you just go till you get to the end of it and and I enjoy doing that. Tomorrow night I'll be in a Bible conference in Virginia. And it is one of those conferences where several of us have been asked to preach from a particular text. And this week we are preaching through Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. I have been given one text. And it is in Romans chapter 8. And I've, I've been asked to preach two times. Because there are two very clearly distinct separate subjects in that text. And so I'll preach Tuesday night from the text and then I'll preach Wednesday from the same text, two different subjects. But for the last couple of weeks, every day I have been in that text. I have spent hours and hours in it. 
And so coming down the road today, that text is in my heart because tomorrow night I, I'm going to preach from that. And it was on my heart for tonight, but, but my apprehension is that it's not a camp meeting message. And I know that we're in camp meeting. I, I know where we're at. And I know that, that, that by the end of the week, we're going to be hoarse from shouting and, and having a wonderful time. But not tonight. Not tonight. And I'm just, I'm just going to obey the Lord. And I, I ask the Lord, I ask Him with all earnestness, Lord, give me something else. But if I, if I, if I know His voice, then I know that this is the text that He wants me to be in tonight. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. In the passage of scripture, the apostle Paul draws a sharp contrast between the spiritual man and the carnal man. There are two classes of men in this passage. There are those who are in the flesh and there are those who are in the spirit. He begins that contrast back in verse number one. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He's going to carry that contrast all the way to verse number 13. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. In verse number 1, there is a contrast in condemnation. The flesh is condemned while there is no condemnation to those who are in the Spirit. In verse number 2 through 4, there is a contrast in control. Those who are in the Spirit are free from sin and death. Those in the flesh are not free. In verse number 5 to 11, there is a contrast in conduct. Those who walk in the Spirit do not walk as those in the flesh. And so Paul is describing two groups of men. I would say that every person in this room tonight belongs in one of those groups. You are either spiritually minded or you are carnally minded. You either walk in the spirit or you walk after the flesh. And if you belong to the group that walks in the spirit, then this is a passage that you ought to mark and come back to often because it is comforting, it is encouraging, it is strengthening. But if you belong to the group that walks in the flesh, then the verses that I read are condemning and convicting of everything about your life. 
And the text is written in such black and white language that all of us should very easily identify as to which group that we belong to. Are you spiritually minded or are you carnally minded? The text will tell you whether you are dominated by the flesh or whether you are dominated by the Spirit. Now, when I come to a passage like this that is so dogmatic and so black and white, I I read it slowly because I don't want to fall into any false teachings that are often taken from a passage like this. Sometimes, sometimes we... uh, we, we, we come to a passage like this with our prepackaged doctrinal statement and we just need a verse to back it up with. Sometimes men come to the Bible and they're not so much students of the Bible as they are students of their favorite radio preacher who may or may not always rightly divide the word of truth. And then there are some of us who always raise an objection to any verse that challenges our lifestyle and makes us look inward to examine ourselves if we are truly spiritual or if it is just an act that we put on when we come to church. So as we examine the text, we need the text to really examine us. Am I spiritually minded or am I carnally minded? Now you have to remember that for the last several weeks I have been every morning in this passage trying to see what God would give me out of this text. And so tonight, here's the way that I want to address this tonight. The first thing that I want to do in examining this text is I want to address a doctrine. See, 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 see there is a doctrine that is taught in many Baptist churches that I believe is in error and it's what I'd call the carnal Christian doctrine. That a Christian can conduct himself carnally. I believe that. But I don't believe it as it is taught in most Baptist churches. Now I'll probably never get invited back again but it's been nice knowing you but I'm just going to go ahead and preach what I believe. That the Bible is clear that when new life is imparted to an unbeliever it manifests itself in a changed life. In the beginning of Romans chapter 8, Paul declares that those who are in the Spirit are under no condemnation. And then he says in verse number 4, he watches this, he says that they walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That is a dogmatic statement. But then in verse number 5 to 11, he's going to tell you why some do walk in the flesh, and it's because of their nature. In verse number 1 through 4, Paul shows that until a man is justified, he cannot possibly be holy. But in verses 5 through 11, he is going to show that if a man is not holy, he cannot possibly claim that he has been justified. Justification is always the basis for sanctification, and sanctification is always the evidence of justification. Now, 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 wherever you begin to preach that Christians actually live like Christians, and here's what happens. We raise the flag of carnality as if that negates a whole body of Bible teaching. It's kind of like a fig leaf to cover my sin and my disdain for holiness. And when you say that a man, when you say that a man has no right to claim, a, to claim to be a child of God when he lives in his sin, shows no evidence of being a child of God, then they throw out this mantra of, of carnality. Now, now, what is the carnal Christian doctrine? I'll just address it and then I'll, I'll move on. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, Paul uses three words to describe three different men. There is the natural man, there is the spiritual man, and there is the carnal man. And those three classes of men are usually defined in this manner. The natural man is the unregenerate man. The man who has never trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He is dead in trespasses and sins. He is the lost man. And that is true. The spiritual man is the man who has not only received Jesus Christ as Savior, but he has embraced him as Lord. His testimony of salvation is backed up by a life of spiritual growth and a zeal for Christ and a sweet submission to the Holy Spirit. He is, as Paul would say, he is walking in the Spirit and not after the flesh. But then we have that third word that Paul uses, and that's the carnal man. And here's how he is usually described. He's the man who is in between. He has received Christ as Savior and been made a child of God, but you and I would never know it because he still lives like a natural man. He is addicted to the world. He is in love with his sin. He is in bondage to the flesh. You cannot discern any fruit of the Holy Spirit in him. You can't discern any desire of holiness in him. He claims to have been saved from hell, though it is evident that he has never been saved from sin. So what we have done is we have created these three classes of people. We have given them that definition and in so doing, we have created a loophole, an escape clause, if you may, for people who claim the name of Christ, but they deny the demands of Christ. Here's what they would say. We would say to oh, holiness is a really nice thing and you ought to clean up your life. And if you were to clean up your life and, and you would get some rewards in heaven, but if you don't, well, you'll still go to heaven anyway. You, you can be saved so as by fire and you may get in by the skin of your teeth if you have said the magical sinner's prayer, but if you have said the magical sinner's prayer, then that's all that's required. The modern gospel presentation does not deal with sin in getting a sinner to say the prayer and it just tries to squeeze him into the gate of heaven. But if you do not deal with his sin before he says the prayer, it's going to be more difficult to deal with his sin in the church pew after he has said the prayer. You see, if you condemn him in his sin before he says the prayer, then the chances are he won't say the prayer and you'll lose a number on your soul winning tally. But then if you condemn his sin after he has said the prayer, he's liable to say, I didn't sign up for this and walk away. So, so we have created, we have created this class of people that I submit to you is nowhere in the Bible. A saved man that lives like a natural man. A man who claims Christ in his heart, but he denies Christ in his life. A man who says he is justified, but he wants no part in sanctification. Find him in the word of God. I, I don't believe that he's there. Whatever the carnal man in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is, that definition does not fit that passage, and it does not fit any passage. So here's what I'm convinced of, Brother Chris. I am convinced that sitting in our independent Baptist churches, that we have people sitting there in our pews and singing in our choir and teaching in our Sunday school classes who have grabbed onto the flag of carnality to explain why they say that they are saved, but they live like they are lost. And this doctrine has produced two results. And the first result that it has produced is a generation of people who claim the name of Christ 
and who in their thinking are the children of God. But they are at home as much if not more in the realm of sin as they are in the realm of the Spirit. They will look you in the eye and acknowledge that they are living in sin, but they do so glibly with no guilt in their soul. They claim 1 John 1 and verse number 9 as a get-out-of-jail card, but it is a soulless, it is a lifeless, it is an emotionless, it is a spiritless claim that has no true meaning. They make no bones about claiming to be a Christian all the while flaunting their love for the world and their sinful lifestyle and their utter disdain for any kind of holy standard. A generation, if I may, a generation of people who enjoy the world on Monday just as much as they enjoy church on Sunday. They can come in here on Sunday morning and sing the songs of Zion and play country and pop music on the radio, driving out of the parking lot and think nothing about it. A generation of pew-sitting people who claim to be saved from the penalty of sin when it is evident they've never been saved from the love of sin. I tell you the second thing that it has produced in our Baptist churches. It has produced a generation of church-going people who are convinced that holiness is commendable, but it is optional. We have taken away the demands of the gospel, and we have made it a take-it-or-leave-it grab bag of choices. There may or may not be a desire for a holy and a changed life. And there may or may not be a pursuit of clean living. And there may or may not be victory over sin and the flesh. I'm telling you now that you'll never find where God gave the option of holiness. It is a demand of His children. Now I want to make this clear. I want to make this crystal clear. And I'm moving on. I want to make it clear that we absolutely believe that every man is saved. By grace, through faith, in that it is not of his works. We are not Armenians and we are not antinomians. And there is any suggestion that you have anything to do with your salvation at all will condemn you to hell. But the same Bible that teaches that salvation is by grace also teaches that salvation is unto holiness. You cannot get anything out of the scriptures except that when a Holy Spirit takes residence in your heart, He transforms you from a lover of sin to a lover of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is not giving us three classes of people as to explain away some have a profession without the possession of the Holy Spirit. He is addressing a specific problem and the specific problem is the problem of disunity and in that area they were acting like they were carnal men but that is a far cry from creating this class of people who are in love with the world and, 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 and not with Christ but yet somehow they're going to heaven. I, I, I believe that our text, Romans 8, proves the fallacy of this carnal Christian doctrine. Look, look, look at the contrast in verse number 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the thing, do you see the contrast there? Look at verse number 6. Look at the contrast. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Look at verse number 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed. Does that sound like a saved man to you? No. I think that verse number 9 is the nail in the coffin. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. A man who is living in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. But if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that's not true of you. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within you, then you are none of his. Is that what the Bible says? That's what my Bible says. The Apostle Paul could not possibly conceive of this creature who says that he's taken Christ and Christ has taken him, but he has not been taken out of the flesh and put into the Spirit. In fact, hold your finger right here. Go to Galatians chapter 5. He referenced it a minute ago. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and just, just put your eyeballs on the verse for just a minute. Go to Galatians 5 and verse number 16. This I say to him, walk in the Spirit, you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against spirit, spirit against flesh. These are contrary to one to another, so you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, watch this. The works of the flesh are, are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Although which I tell you before, watch this. As I have also told you in time past, watch this. That they... Which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty dogmatic, ain't it? Huh? Keep reading. Keep reading. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law. Watch this. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections. And lust says that they have. Now, I, I know so I'm making some of y'all nervous. I, I know because you think I'm over in work salvation. I'm about a million miles away from it right now, all right? So, so, so just, just hang on for just a minute, all right? Do, do, do you belong to Christ? Does the Spirit of God dwell within you? I am telling you that according to my Bible, it will be evident whether you do the works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit are produced in you, which is the character of Christ. I'm not saying that you'll never sin. I'm not saying that you won't battle the flesh. I'm not saying that you'll never succumb to temptation. I'm not saying that you'll live in sinless perfection. But I am telling you that there is a change in masters. Romans 6, ye did serve sin, but you now serve Christ and righteousness. And are we to carve out an exception clause for people who have prayed a quick prayer and went their merry way and they didn't even want to be saved in the first place? I mean, are we to carve out this exception clause, this little, this little gap or this little, this little get out of jail card and we twisted somebody's arm into praying the sinner's prayer and now we send him on his way to heaven. He don't even want to go to heaven. Yeah, man. We to wave away the carnality of church members who love, live such worldly lifestyles, but they pray to prayer, so they just must be calm. Huh? Are we okay? Are we okay? 
I mean, I mean, they post pictures of their carnality on Facebook and they prance naked down the streets and they go to the movies and watch blasphemy and nudity and sodomy and they are entertained by that. They love the songs of the world and the fashions of the world and the idols of the world. But you know they prayed a prayer when they was five, so they just must be carnal. Something's wrong with that. Can, can, can I go a little bit farther? What, what about our children? They said a prayer when they was four. Now they're 14. Don't care one whip for God. But the parent breathes a sigh of relief because, well, I, I know they're not living with Christ. But I was there when they said that prayer in junior church. In, in our, I am convinced. I am convinced that, that some parents are afraid to admit that their children don't have the real thing because they're not as spiritual as their children are and if their children don't have the real thing, they probably don't have the real thing either. You, you dare not say, you dare not say that your children may not be truly converted because you don't produce as much fruit as they do and if they're not converted, it might cast doubt upon you. Amen. And can I say this too? And I know, I know, I know I'll never be back. But when, how did we ever get to the place where lordship became a dirty word in our Baptist churches? How did we get there? We're afraid to preach lordship because the easy believism crowd says that lordship salvation is work salvation. I know whoever defines the terms wins the argument. You call me what you want. I don't care. But show me in the Bible where you can take Christ as Savior and reject him as Lord. I, I know, I know that a believer can sin and I know that he can backslide and I know that he can get away from God. I know that he can go back to his old ways and return to sin and I know he'll be miserable in it and he'll feel the chastening of God in his soul. I, 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 say, I say this idea that a man who claims that he is a Christian but there's never any evidence of the Holy Ghost in his life but yet he falls into this mystical category of carnal. It is not a Bible doctrine. When I look at this passage, I, I have to address that doctrine. But then when I come to the text, I'm hurrying. I think that we need to apply some definitions. There, there's three words. There's three words that the whole passage really revolves around. It is the word spirit, flesh, and carnal. Spirit, capital S. The focus of Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. It's striking that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit four times in Romans 1 through 7. But he mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times in chapter 8. I don't have time to read these, but in verse number 2, the Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. In verse number 9, the Spirit indwells us and marks us as belonging to Christ. In verse number 11, the Spirit appropriated the resurrection of Christ to us. In verse number 14, the Spirit gives us life. In verse number 15, the Spirit gives us the spirit of adoption, driving out the spirit of fear. In verse number 16, the Spirit bears with us with our spirit that God's our Father. In verse number 26, the Spirit helps us in our infirmities. In verse 27, the Spirit makes intercession for us. And I know that this crowd knows the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and I'll preach that. But I just want you to have take note that, that everything that happens in and through and for a believer is by the Holy Spirit. You're not saved without him and you're not sanctified without him. And the Holy Spirit is to the believer what God the creator is to the physical world. 
Without God, the creator, the material world, the physical world would not exist. And without his sustaining power, it wouldn't remain. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is the divine agent who creates new life in you and grows spiritual life in those who know Christ. Spirit. But then there's another word, and it is the word flesh that he uses often. And it's obvious that the word flesh can refer to physical life, the body that we live. All flesh is as grass, all the glory of man as the flower of grass. But it's clear that Paul's not using the word in that sense, not the physical sense. He's using it as the human nature that's corrupted by sin. If I could say it to me like, like, like this, according to this passage, to be in the flesh is to be in the unregenerate state. To, to be according to the flesh is to live, to, to live according to the dictates of the sinful impulses of the flesh. To, to walk according to the flesh is to carry out in conduct that which is dictated by the human nature. Now let me tell you something about your flesh. Your flesh can be conservative or your flesh can be liberal. It'll manifest itself in two different ways. When your flesh is conservative, it produces legalism. Here's what your flesh will do. It'll keep the rules. It'll have a show of standards. It will act like it's interested in spiritual things and it will take pride in how clean that it is. But when your flesh is liberal, it produces immorality. It reveals itself in rebellion and revelings and every abominable things like Peter said in 1 Peter 4. It will either, it will either manifest itself in pride and self-reliance and morality or it will reveal itself in drunkenness and immoral living and such things. But it is all flesh. It is all proud, it is selfish, it is rebellious. And I'm going to tell you something else about flesh. You can never change flesh. Flesh will always be flesh. It cannot be changed, it cannot be reformed, it cannot be redeemed, it can't do things that are pleasing to God. It will never get any better. The rebellious, non-submissive flesh will never surrender and become submissive, Christ-pleasing flesh. He says in Romans 8 and verse number 3, he says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. The flesh, the flesh, whether conservative or liberal, it will always be rebellious, it will always be corrupt, it will always be depraved, it will always be stubborn, it will always be proud. It is openly arrogant, it is overbearingly boastful, it is lustful, it is sensual. But when your flesh is driven into the corner, it will put on a garb of righteousness and it will become pious and it will become religious and it will become moral and it will be zealous in good works. The flesh can teach a Sunday school class and the flesh can pass out a gospel track and the flesh can sing in the choir. But there is one thing that flesh will never do. It will never surrender to the demands of the Holy Ghost. You have spirit, you have flesh. I'm, I'm hurrying, I'm hurrying. But then we have this word carnal. The word carnal carnally appears 14 times in the Bible, three times in the Old Testament, 11 times in the New Testament. Oxford Dictionary says that carnal relates to the physical wants and needs of the body, especially sexual appetites. That word's found three times in the Old Testament. You can get a definition from the Bible. Leviticus 18 and verse 20, Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife. Chapter 19 and verse 20, whosoever lie carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid betrothed to an husband. So carnal is fleshly. 
Just like the word flesh, it can appeal, it can apply physically, but it can also apply morally. And to be carnally minded in the passage is to pursue the desires of the fleshly nature. Even in religious exercises, the carnal man seeks no higher goal than himself. His religion is self-righteous, it is self-pleasing, it is self-seeking, it is self-justifying. All of his all of his conformity to Christian things is for self, not for God. And so I come to this passage and I think it's important that we address a doctrine and that we apply some definitions. But then I want you to notice thirdly, and I hurry. I want you to acknowledge the differences. The teaching is set in contrast. Here's the life of the Spirit and here's the life of the flesh. And your life tonight is dominated by one of those principles. The law of the flesh or the law of the Spirit is active right now in your life. It may be that your life is dominated by sinful desire. You live for sin. You focus on self. And the only law that you obey is your own will and the lust of your flesh. And again, lust flesh manifests itself in different ways. It might be passion controlled. It might be lust controlled. It might be pride controlled. It might be ambition controlled. It might be rebellion controlled. You, you may live by your pride. You may live by your lust. You may live by your rebellion against authority. But it is all dominated by the flesh. And set against that is a life that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. As a man lives in the air, so he lives in the Spirit. As a man breathes in the air and it fills his lung, so this man is filled with the Spirit of God. He has no mind but the mind of Christ. He has no will but the will of Christ that he lives by. He's giving you a contrast. Look at it, hurry. There's a contrast in passion. Look at verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the Spirit, things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Your walk is determined by what goes on in your mind. Your mind is a powerful thing. There are thoughts that are running through your mind every waking hour and maybe every sleeping hour. I have so many things on my mind, preacher, and I can't get it out. And sometimes I'll lay in bed and I, I feel like I'm thinking about things all night. Yeah. I'll look at the clock and it's 1.30 and then it's 2.30 and it's 3. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know. Do I, ever, do I ever sleep and it's not there? It's not there. It just seems like there's, there's, it's just a constantly. I, I go to bed and, and there's thoughts in my mind. And then when I wake up, the minute I wake up, I'm thinking about something. But it seems, I don't know, anybody know what it, it seems like I've been thinking about it all. We, our choir sang a song yesterday morning, uh, Behold Our God. And I love the song. And so last night I'm laying in bed. I had to get up early to get here. And last night I'm laying in bed. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I'm, am I asleep? But I'm singing the song. It's Behold I, 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 Would the song just go away? Just go away for a couple hours. And it's just there. It's just there. It's just, it's just constantly there. I don't know if there is a moment where there's not something racing through my mind. Yes. Now, I don't believe, watch this, I don't believe that the mind governs how we live. How we live governs our mind. 
It is not that your mind is geared toward the world and so you naturally gravitate toward that as if your mind is pulling you in that direction. Paul's not saying that you are carnal or spiritual because your mind is already that way. I believe that you decide how you want to live and then your mind focuses, it plans, it justifies how you decide that you want to live. Moral choice precedes intellectual orientation. You, 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 you don't think yourself into the way that you live. You live and then you think how that you are living. You are what you think. The mind is just there to dwell upon it and focus on it and plan it and justify what's already in your heart. That's why Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, he said, if you then be risen to Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. There's a sharp contrast. There's a sharp contrast between the mind of the spiritual man and the mind of the carnal man. The carnal man focuses on the worldly, the physical, the material. And all the things that consume his mind may not be wrong and evil, but it's fleshly, it's worldly. He may have religious thoughts, but religion is a self-help, self-improvement, self-justifying exercise. But when a man becomes a new creature in Christ, his mind is transformed. Whereas before some of you men never had a thought of Christ, you never had a Bible verse in your mind, you never sang a gospel song, you never quoted a Bible verse, but then you got saved. And when you got saved, all of a sudden there's a new Bible verse and a new song and a new vocabulary. It is as if some new force has taken a hold of your mind and has put things in there that was no part of you before and you look back on your past life and how you walked and how you lived and how you talked and all the things that you thought about and now you look at your mind now and what you're thinking about and you're sitting in church with a Bible in your lap singing these songs and you ask yourself where did these thoughts come from? How did all of these thoughts get into my mind? Why is my mind directed toward the blood and the book and the blessed hope? I'll tell you, it's because of the Holy Spirit. It may not be perfect. I know that sometimes you have to call your mind, but how pleasant it is to have a mind that is dominated by the Spirit of God. And Paul is making a statement of fact that if you have a carnal mind that is dominated by sinful things, then you are dead. You've got a mind that's dominated by the Spirit dwelling on Christ and all things pertaining. It is evidence of life in you. It's a contrast in passion. i got to hurry in verse number 7. There's a contrast in peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. The spiritual man is at peace. The carnal man is at war with God. Isaiah describes the unsaved man like a restless sea. Wicked or like the restless sea when it cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt. He's not at peace with God and he's not at peace with himself. That's why he's got to have a bottle and a pill and a drug, and he's got to have a psychiatrist. Like the maniac of Gadara, his mind torments him. His conscience is seared by his rebellion against God, and, and he's cast in turmoil. But the Holy Spirit of God brings peace within yourself and peace with God. There is nothing as miserable as a man who is at war with his Creator. There is nothing more blessed than a man who is at peace with his Creator. There is no peace, saith God, to the wicked. But thou would keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. This verse says that the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's what it says. 
You know, so preacher, I, I, I don't hate God. I, I don't feel like that I'm at enmity with God. Well, I enjoy church. I, I enjoy camp meeting and good gospel music. I live a clean life compared to my neighbors. I tithe of my income. So listen to me tonight. You can enjoy on an emotional level the worship of others without ever entering into the worship yourself. You can enjoy good gospel music but rebel at the holiness of God. I like the atmosphere, but I'm still not going to have him sovereign over my life. Who wouldn't like this music tonight? It's lively, it's spirited, it's harmonious, it, it revs you up. It, it's great, I love it. Yeah. But you can love this kind of music and hate the holiness of God. Yeah. So, see, many men claim to love God, but it is, a, it is a God of their imaginations. What they've done is they've picked out the parts of God that they like, the mercy, the grace, the fruit, that part. And they've crafted an image in their mind and they've cut out all of those parts of God that they don't like. And in so doing, they are proving themselves as much an enemy of God as the atheist who shakes his fist to heaven and says, there's no God. There's a contrast in peace. I'm done in verse number eight. There's a contrast in pleasure. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Certainly his sin doesn't please God. But his religion and his good works doesn't please God either. Well, the fleshly carnal man comes to God with his good works, with his charity, his show of worship. And God looks at it like he did Cain's offering and says, I cannot accept that. Amen. The only thing that a carnal man can do is come in the vileness of his sin and fall on the mercy of God at the expense of his son, Jesus Christ. And when he comes to God in his humility and his repentance and his sorrow, God will make him his own. And he will begin to transform his life. That's the Bible. He will begin to transform his life so that in the end, a life that was nauseous to God may now be presented to God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him. The more that I read the passage, the more I'm convinced that Paul is contrasting a saved man and an unregenerate man. It doesn't square with the Bible of this anomaly of a man that is saved, but he's so dominated by the flesh. Yes. Somebody says, preacher, wait a minute. What about the man that sat in church for years and served God, but then he got hurt, got offended, got bitter, and he quit, and now he won't darken the doors of a church ever. There's two things that I cannot tell. I cannot tell if you're saved, and I can't tell if you're lost. And I know there are men and women who get hurt and they get bitter against God and they quit. But tonight I'm talking about a man who makes a profession of faith. But there is never a change in his life. There is never a desire for God. There is not one step toward holiness. And only he and God knows if he has the real stuff. But you tell me why I am to believe that he has the Spirit of God within him in contradiction to the Word of God. He better have more than a prayer. He meets God. There's another part to this, but I've got to quit. I've tried to use these verses to make that contrast clear. If you're saved tonight, there is a hunger, there is a thirst for God. You want His Spirit and what He can do in you. And maybe tonight you sit here and you say, Preacher, I know that I'm saved. And I want to be a Spirit-filled Christian. This is what I want. I want more of Christ. I want more of Him. I want more of his control in my life. I want to be spiritually minded. 
I want his influence in my life. I don't have time to finish it. I'm done. But the Holy Ghost has given you some resources. I just mentioned it to you. I'm done. I'm done. He's given you a book. You are not going to be spiritually minded without a saturation of the Word of God. There are children in our children's ministry that come every Sunday and they never bring their Bible to church and they never never memorize the Scriptures. They don't do their lessons at all. And there's other children that come and they always carry the Bible and they've always got the verses memorized and they've done their homework. And and I'm telling you, I'm telling you that that book, if it is not a centerpiece in your home, it's going to show in the children. If you never read it, if you have no interest in the preaching. In our church, we need to take the church chairs out of our foyer. If people come to church and sit in the foyer. Because you can play on your phone in the foyer. You come to church and, you, and you're not interested. You never want to have a conversation about Bible truths. I'm going to tell you, it will be impossible to have a spiritual mind. You cannot divorce spirituality from this book. I'll tell you what he's giving you. I'll tell you what he's giving you. He's giving you a building. Your attitude toward church, your attitude toward Christ is reflected in your attitude toward church. A spirit-filled person will delight in church. There is a stark contrast between the carnal man and the Christian man. In their we have church. I'm not, I'm not down in my church. I've got a great church. We have church members, teenagers that have sat in our church while the word of God is being preached and they played on their phone looking at Facebook or Instagram or playing some kind of game or whatever it might be. You cannot divorce spirituality from the church. I tell you what he's given you. He's given you a body. It's not just a presence in the church, but the fellowship of like-minded believers. Some of you young people, you got carnally-minded friends. They laugh at your dirty jokes. They encourage you in the music that you want to listen to. They encourage you in your carnality. And as long as your friend is a worldly, you will be too. You cannot have fellowship with the world and have fellowship with God. Spiritually minded people find spiritual minded people that will push them, encourage them, and exhort them. You got a book, and you got a building, and you got a body. I'm going to tell you what there is tonight. There's a beseeching. There is the Holy Spirit. There is to guide you, and to grow you, and to teach you. And one of the marks of the spiritual life is not your list of standards. But it's your surrender to the Holy Spirit. Will you say, I want to be like Jesus. I want a life that is pleasing to the Father. I want to surrender to the Spirit, but my flesh is so strong. The old man is alive. Lord, I sure need your help. I am weak. My flesh is strong. Would you give me grace and would you give me strength to die to the flesh today and live to the Spirit? I come not to you as a great Christian. I come to you as a weak Christian, feeble and frail. Without your help, I can't do anything. So guard my eyes and guard my ears. Refrain my tongue and control my temper. I lean on you. I need you today and tomorrow and the rest of the time. Are you carnal or are you Christian? Are you spiritually minded or are you carnally minded? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.